So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whatever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Lord, would you speak to us afresh from uh, this well-known passage, and would you give us words to take into this week? In Christ's name, amen. We moved to Dallas, Texas, uh, which is possibly one of the greatest moves of our lives, <clears throat> just because it brought us here to you. Um, I'm kidding. No, I'm serious, but I, you know, where, where am I going? Yes. And, um, you know, I'd, we'd been in ministry, I'd been in ministry in, in England, and I was, you know, we'd faced some pretty uh, uh, theologically acute Presbyterians in, in, in England, and so I, I felt like I was, I was accustomed to, to theological debates. What caught me off guard was in my first week of being on the job, I was asked, so in terms of revelation, I said yes, are you pre- or post-millennial? 
And I literally did not know what this person meant. And I simply said, I think the lamb wins. In fact, I'm sure the lamb wins. So that's, that's kind of my basis on what's going to happen with the rapture. Um, I say that, and I think I annoyed the person, but I think, you know, it was, it was due because that's just a question I wasn't prepared for. Um, and so often we can get caught up by debating on things about faith or life that aren't necessarily essential or primary. They, they're significant, but um, sometimes I've seen, living here, I'm going to say for 10 years now, that the, the theological debates that happen in Dallas aren't always um, essential. Um, they, are, they are important, but sometimes we can get stuck and locked into having conversations that maybe um, are, are, are a distraction. And what we have here is in, in John chapter four, we have another um, intimate conversation between Jesus and, and an unlikely individual. Last week we looked at um, the passage with Nicodemus, and here we are with the Samaritan woman. And um, it's, it's been preached on famously by so many. And how John is using this passage is he's using it to paint a theological portrait, not just of Jesus, but of his kingdom. And there are two main things they talk about. They talk about the gift, and they talk about worship. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. In Nicodemus, the conversation was, how do you see the kingdom of God? And then progress to, how do you enter the kingdom of God? And now Jesus is talking about the gift that he has to give and what worship looks like. So Jesus is on the road. And he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, uh, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well at about the sixth hour, at about noon. So this is an important place. He hasn't just pulled into Whataburger or McDonald's, depending on where you fall on the debate over burgers. Um, you know, I know there is no debate um, over burgers. But um, this is a significant place. Jacob's well was, a, is a, was a, and still is today, a significant place. So much so that you could go to Jacob's well in the hill country. Uh, and it's, it's a lovely spot, but this is not the one they're talking about. Um, so they're sat there, and you'll think back to Genesis 48 when the hand over the land is given. And what Jesus does next is he crosses a number of boundaries on purpose. Because in John chapter three, the great surprise was that God so loved the world. Well, that's a great thing to say. But now Jesus is proving that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so he crosses boundaries. And he does it because a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, uh, a lot is made about the fact that a woman is coming to Jacob's well at noon. And uh, in my previous life, I was trained as a historian, and, and the thing that they drill into you, they drill two things into you. It's the first is there's so much history out there that you can use any amount of history to make whatever case you want to make. Okay, so there's your warning. The second thing is, is that as a historian, you try to keep as many prejudices out of the text that you're looking at so as not to bring your own 
prejudice to the text. And so all we know is that the Samaritan woman has come to the well at noon. We don't know why, but there are many reasons why you might want to get water at noon. And Jesus says to her, give me a drink. And in this first opening um, sentence, he's crossing a racial boundary, which means that he's putting, in the eyes of the religious elite, he's putting his own personal purity at stake because he's talking to someone who's unclean, you don't associate with. He's crossing a gender boundary. He's talking to a woman. He's, ta- he's crossing a theological boundary because the Jews believed that Samaritans had some questionable theology around what life was meant to look like. And so talking to them would make you unclean, <clears throat> drinking, <clears throat> pardon me, drinking from a Samaritan would really make you unclean. So Jesus has just crossed all of these boundaries on purpose because God loves the world. He didn't come to judge the world. He came to love the world, show his love to the world so that all would encounter him. And so there is this encounter happening at Jacob's well. And the woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me and woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would would have given you living water. The woman said to him, and this is where she's picking up on, you know, we're at Jacob's well. And you're asking me for water, you know, but you say you have better water than I do. It's like going to the Statue of Liberty and trying to lecture everyone there about what liberty's like. You know, you can do it, but, you know, I'd question, you know, your motives. It just kind of doesn't feel proper. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? The answer is no, is the expected no, but the answer, actually, he is. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. Jesus is saying that as important as this sight is, As important as Jacob's well is, there's a different well. There's a different type of water. And he talks about the gift. Well, what is the gift? Well, gifts tell us about the giver, right? That's why we give good gifts, or we try to give good gifts at Christmas and birthdays, because we want the recipient to know how much we care, like, or love them. Well, the gift as Jesus says here, is living water. The gift is the Holy Spirit. Repeatedly in Acts, the Spirit is referred to as the gift of God. Peter describes the gift of the Holy Spirit as something received by those who turn and believe in Jesus. And what we have here is an invitation. 
an invitation to receive something from Jesus that will transform her life. Arrhenius and Augustine both declare that the gift was the precise and proper name for the Holy Spirit. Renieri Cantalamessa, who was the preacher to the papal see, describes this name as uniquely as the, as the Holy Spirit's very own name. In short, what all this means is the gift is the giver himself. And so by Jesus saying, ask of me and I will give you the gift of living water, he's not gonna give, the offer isn't just for a gift, but it's, the, it's an offer of receiving the giver of every good gift. Receiving God himself. The term gift conveys the sense of being unmerited, undeserved. The spirit sent by the Father through Jesus is the pure, gracious, benevolent, free offering of God to live and love with someone who doesn't deserve it because in the days of Jesus, she's a woman who is a Samaritan. She has a complicated past, which we'll see in a moment. She is a social outcast, which we'll see in a moment for a potential number of reasons. This is a woman who, because of the religious system of the day, was told that she was other. And Jesus is saying, no, for God so loved the world that he gave his son, that I am here that though you've been told that you are not worthy to enter in, and to worship, I'm here to offer you the giver. The giver. What is this living water? The Spirit sent by the Father through Jesus is the pure, gracious, benevolent, free offering of God to live and love with humankind. And our reception of the Spirit is not a reward for good effort or good behavior or good theology, but based exclusively on God's generosity. I don't do this often, but I was working out with a friend at White Rock YMCA. And he was visiting from town, and he's the kind of friend who's a, a liability, because you just, when you're around him, you get into situations you wish you could avoid. And we're in the locker room, and you know, when I go into a locker room, I'm quiet, I don't want to talk to anyone, my eyes are just get through, get in and get out as fast as I can. And he starts talking to a guy who immediately says, oh, I, am, I got so drunk last night. I drank Bud Light, I drank Michelob, I drank. he starts drinking a whole list of beers that he drank. My friends are saying, oh, wow, wow. And he says, what did you drink last night? He says, oh, I drank living water. And he's like, I'm like, not here, not now. We just gotta go. <laughs> Just got to go. He says, yeah. He says, living water. I've not heard of that beer. Is it an IPA, a stout? And he's like, oh, it's just so refreshing. It's closer to a Pilsner. And he had baited this guy. Hook was deep. And he said, oh, where can I get that living water? And he says, oh, you should get to know my friend Dave. He goes to where they serve that living water all the time. And I'm not even dressed yet. And I'm like, really? Your timing is severely questionable. And um, anyway, so we talked to this guy, and he's like, yeah, if I, because man, 
it felt so good drinking last night, but now I feel so terrible. And he's like, yeah, that living water, you feel good all the time. Even when you feel bad, you feel good. And he's like, oh, I need some of this. He says, yeah, anyway. So I think we prayed for him, but I was, my toe was, I just wanted to get out just because the, the situation was not, was not right. So we have this incredible offer. And then we get into the detail of what's behind the offer and why this offer is so appealing. Jesus said to her in verse 16, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. What's going on here? Well, she obviously has a past. And there is an element to her life that means she's an outcast. Why has she had so many husbands? Um, well, as some of you will know, divorce was very different back then. A woman had no ability or power to stop a divorce, a divorce once her husband decided to dismiss her, and she had no recourse for justice. And so, we don't know the details as to why she's had so many husbands and why she's with a man who's not her husband. What we know is, is that that was a very, very dynamic time. We know that there were a number of Jewish revolts against the Romans across the whole area that Samaritans were involved in. And could it be that perhaps her first husband had been, because when someone opposes Rome, Rowan instills peace in a very brutal and violent way. Could it be that one or two or some of the husbands had been killed at the hands of the Romans? Maybe. Could it be here that Jesus is making a point about the systemic injustice of divorce and how it was used so easily in that time in a way that really um, was awful towards in, in, in how it treated women? Absolutely, because he picks it up later on in his teachings. What we know is, is that this woman is likely to be vulnerable economically, physically, and socially. And she is left with no leverage to prevent or to direct the course of her life. We also know, because of what they're about to talk about, that she's highly educated. Because she has a grasp on this, the theological uh, issues of the day. So she's just, she's not your average woman. She's absolutely remarkable. And this is what happens. What comes next is a theological debate on worship at the same caliber of Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus was, remember, the Sanhedrin and, and just a real, a real authority. And so they begin to talk about mountains. Jesus has a word of knowledge where he's given insight into what her personal state is and that gets her attention. And she sees that, oh, this offer of the gift might actually be on offer. It's not just a false offering. You know, like when Toby offers me Chase. Dad, do you want to play with Chase? Say, sure, I'll play with Chase. And all of a sudden, Chase is taken away. That was a false offering, right? Jesus' offering of the gift 
which is the giver, may not be a false offering. And so they begin, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, in verse 19, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And they go on. Samaritans believe that the one sanctuary where, where God ordained the Deuteron, De, tough word, Deuteronomic law, I didn't pronounce that right, but carry on, wasn't in Jerusalem, but was on Mount Gerizim where they were currently stood. And there, that was the, the two mountains. That was what it was all about. So the Jews said, no, it's Jerusalem. And they say, no, it's our mountain. And that was the debate. And in that debate, they'd learned to hate each other, vilify each other, and make cases for why Jews never talked to Samaritans and vice versa. Samaritans were less than. Samaritans saw Jews as less than, not even worth associating with. We can call that racism. We can call that prejudice. We can, call, we can find all kinds of names for it. Jesus just uses the word wrong. You're both wrong. Or whether one's right or one's wrong, it's all going to change. The place is no longer the point. Because what constitutes worship is not the where, but the who and the how. When God will be worshiped neither on Mount Zion nor on this mountain, but true worship will be offered in spirit and truth. What does that mean? What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Well, think about this with me for a moment. God is spirit. Therefore, worship which connects to him isn't really formulated by external categories of place and performance. Rather, it's an act of our spirit through the action of the Holy Spirit which connects us to the Father through the Son. So all three are involved. Right? To worship Jesus in truth isn't speaking so much about authentic, honest, heartfelt integrity, though that needs to exist, but it's primarily to speak of spirit-led, Christ-centered, Christ-opened, gospel-directed worship. A number of times... um, (laughs) My last church in London, someone once came up to me, a couple had stopped going, they said, how is the worship on Sunday? I said, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's great. Uh, the whole premise of that question is wrong because worship is for him, right? It's not for us. In fact, if you enjoy the style of the music, just wait a little longer because, you, you know, if we are worshiping Jesus in the right way, we should all be somehow equally dissatisfied a little bit because Sundays aren't really for us, they're for him, right? You can come to the front, Walter. Yeah, come on, it's biblical, yeah, no. And so this couple said to me, they were really into a different style of worship that we just weren't able to do, and uh, they said, well, tell us when the worship improves and we'll come back. In honesty, I never returned that call. Andrew Murray says this, All worshipers are not true worshipers. Because we need Jesus. And that's the point. We need the presence of the giver in our life to be able to worship Jesus. 
the criteria is whether it is worship from our spirit and led and fed by the Holy Spirit connecting to God, the Spirit, through the truth of the person and work of Jesus who has opened up the way of worship to us. And so it's about connection. It's about connection. It's about connecting to the Father through the Son and the power of the Spirit. And sometimes the biggest challenge is I've not actually met in my life a person who is actually a really good giver. And there are people, some of you, may, that might be your lived experience. Every gift I've received has, has strings attached. Or every, um, every person I've met has taken from me. That is likely the experience of the Samaritan woman. If you're rather, you may have heard the story, but I'll tell it. It was rather uh, surprising. I, we have prayer teams at the back during, during communion. And I was new to all of this, it was about 21 years ago, and I wanted to learn how to pray for people, so I was at the back, I'd done the training, I, hadn't, I didn't really know any prayers by memory yet, but I was just like, okay, I can do the one prayer, come Holy Spirit. And so this guy comes up, dressed up in a tweed suit, he looked amazing. I mean, he is probably what they modeled the Peaky Blinders after. And he comes up and he says, would you pray for me? I said, sure, how can I pray? He says, however you feel, however you feel led. Not helpful. So I put my hand on his shoulder. After asking if I put my hand on his shoulder, I says, can I pray for you? He says, yes. And I just kind of say, come Holy Spirit. And I'm waiting. They told us that sometimes when the Lord wants to lead us to pray for someone, he will just give us a little bit of insight to what's going on in their lives. So I was waiting for some panoramic vision or something like Jesus to unlock this person's heart. Instead, I just had this odd thought go through my mind, which I was convinced wasn't God, which were the two words, no socks. I mean, this is clearly not scripture worthy, but anyway, I just kind of whisper out, I just sense God might be saying no socks. And this, you know, if you've been around Brits, my wife excluded, uh, many are emotionally repressed. This man carried all the signs of emotional repression. And I, when I said no socks, his lip began to quiver. And I was like, emboldened, so I said, in the name of Jesus, no socks, and he began to cry. And then I said, you know, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, no socks. And he knelt down and wept like a babe. And I was utterly mystified. I was like, what just happened? And uh, so I got the tissues, and I thought, I made the mess, I might as well clean it up. And so we get him, after he finishes, I clean him up, and I said, what was going on? He said, I was sent to boarding school at age six. My parents never came to my birthday, and they always sent me socks. I have never received anything but socks as a gift. I was like, oh, I bet you have quite the collection. I didn't say that because it's passionately insensitive. Um, but I did say, well, what happened? He said, well, when you prayed for me, I just was filled with the sense that God was gonna give me something amazing and that I was worth much more than socks. He then, he was a PhD in pure math, so we didn't talk much. Um, <laughs> but he went on to be a missionary in Indonesia. Yeah, just utterly incredible. What happened? Jesus connected with his heart through the power of the Spirit and the giver filled his heart. And his life turned and he went to teach pure mathematics in Indonesia in a, as an excuse to share the gospel. 
So, as I close, it's about connection. It's connecting with him. And it's not just when we're here, it's throughout the week. It's as we're on the go. The, the word is to fuel us as we go. The food at communion is food for the road. It's to give us sustenance so we can go out and represent the giver. If you have, if you have need to meet the giver today, the good news is that he has promised to make himself known at the table. And if you're like me and you want more, after you've fed from the table at communion, go to the back, receive prayer, and they'll pray for you. Make sure you're wearing good socks. For God so loved the world. Doesn't matter what you've gone through, doesn't matter what's been said to you, what's been done to you, his love for you is complete, it's benevolent, and it's for you. And he doesn't just want to give you a gift, he wants to give you himself. That's true if you've never received from him, it's true if you receive from him a thousand times. He has more. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this encounter. Thank you that this encounter transformed the Samaritan woman so that she was able to bring the whole town, you, Jesus, to the whole town. We ask today that you would help us to receive from you. Even now, Lord, would you, we've prayed and asked that you would help us to trust you. Now, would, would you reveal yourself to each one of us as the perfect giver by giving to us yourself afresh. Amen.